You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Over the last few decades, charter schools have grown in popularity for parents who seek greater educational opportunities for their children. The demand for charter schools is very high. Thousands of students are put on wait lists each year, and students are even outperforming their district school counterparts. Today we are joined by Success Academy founder and CEO, Eva Moskowitz. Success Academy is the largest and highest performing public charter school network in the New York City area. Charter schools receive less public funding from local and state taxes and federal programs than district schools. They also seek private funding in efforts for them to be able to operate to their fullest capacity. So, are charter schools a wise investment for your portfolio? Programs like the New Market Tax Credit and Opportunity Zones provide great incentives for investments in charter schools. This type of impact investing also pays back as a good deed. Investors have that satisfaction knowing that their investments are better educating America's children. So let's jump right in. So Eva Moskowitz, the founder and CEO of Success Academy, is here with us today. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Haley, for having me. So you founded Success Academy in 2006 with 165 students in Harlem, New York. Today, now you operate um, in 47 schools with, you know, around 20,000 students um, across different boroughs of New York. I just was hoping you could share with all of us what your educational philosophy has been that has made Success Academy, you know, so successful over these years. Sure. Well, I founded Success Academies uh, with um, my founders, Joel Greenblatt and John uh, Petrie, who were the founding board chairs, uh, really to solve an educational crisis uh, that exists in New York City, but it actually exists around the country in many, many urban areas. Uh, If you are poor and black or brown, Uh, you most likely are assigned to a failing uh, district school. You know, if you're white and affluent, you might move to the suburbs or you might go to an independent school. But uh, if you're poor, you get assigned by government to a school and most likely that is a failing school. So we open success as a a way out. How could we make sure that um, poor people also get choices and can kick the tires on a school and decide if they want to send their children to a particular school, just like uh, affluent people do. And that's the whole concept behind charters. So when I started, uh, we started with one school in Harlem. Ironically, uh, it was uh, located, it is located on 118th Street, which is where I happened to grow up. As a child, I grew up in Harlem. Uh, and uh, we started with 165 kindergartners and first graders with the idea of creating a replicable model that not only closed the achievement gap, but reversed it. And I'm very proud to say that based on the external measures, our poor black and brown kids are outperforming 
kids in Westchester, in Scarsdale, believe it or not, an affluent suburb. Uh, and our kids are getting admitted to school, uh, college. A hundred percent of them uh, go to college. Uh, we've received millions of dollars in financial aid for them. Uh, and uh, we're now 20,000 kids K through 12. And you have said rather than fixing something that's broken, you really wanted to create something new. Um, you know, how do you reduce this stigma that low income students don't have that same education potential uh, as maybe more, you know, high income communities and families and students? Yeah, well, I think you prove uh, that that is a, a bias that is unfounded uh, in our kids. Uh, are poor and yet they're achieving at higher levels, whether you look at state tests or whether you look at APs or whether you look at SATs, all the external measures uh, indicate that uh, there's nothing wrong with the children. There is something wrong with a broken system that doesn't deliver on their behalf. And we can talk if you're interested in why the system is broken, but it's not an idea, it's an empirical reality that uh, the vast majority of schools that poor black and brown children are forced to go to, kids are not reading on the most basic level. So you, you, know, you are seeking to shrink this achievement gap. Could we not simply close inch close that achievement gap, could we surpass it and set a fundamentally new standard for what all children can achieve, but particularly our poorest, most vulnerable children? And just so you understand, we're doing this not only with um, children who are get free and reduced lunch, but we're doing it with children who uh, are living in homeless shelters. 9% of our kids live in homeless shelters. Uh, we have English language learners. About 15% of our children are special needs children. And our special needs children are outperforming gen ed children in the city of New York. So it's a pretty game-changing result uh, and we not only are obviously extremely happy for the children and families who are beneficiaries of that result, but we think that it has lessons for reimagining public education more generally. Uh, and, you know, you should know that while public education in America is particularly bad for our poorest children, it's not as if affluent children are doing super well internationally. We're in the middle to lower third of the pack internationally, and yet in America, we spend more money than any country on the planet on educating our children. And so for those resources, you would think we would be number one, number two, number three, top 10 countries in the world. And yet we're in kind of the bottom half at best in math and science. We're actually doing worse than the bottom half. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And you're really proving that a child's zip code should not determine their, you know, educational destiny. Um, you mentioned that this is personal for you. Um, you. You grew up in Harlem. You went to school there. Uh, you have had a storied career in education reform. Can you take us back to how you got here today and a little bit more about your background? Sure. And just um, personally, uh, I, I grew up. Uh, in New York City in uh, the late 60s and 1970s uh, and went to, frankly, some pretty bad schools. Um, But uh, my parents were educators and they would teach my brother and I. And the kids that I went to school with who were um, not largely black and brown, but all were black and brown, Um, you know, had parents who worked three jobs who didn't necessarily weren't able to get an education from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. My parents sort of did homeschooling before that was a thing, but they sent us to school and then they taught us at night. So school was kind of free babysitting from their perspective. And the kids that I went to school with were just as smart as my brother and I. They just were dependent on this broken system. And I remember even as a kid feeling that that's just so unfair. The American way is to everybody gets an equal opportunity. They get to start at the starting line. Uh, But it clearly was not the case. We had a deeply segregated school system that had Uh, very unequal results. And so I was motivated to change that. Um, And um, I took, you know, variety of paths. I got a PhD in American history, but I really wanted to be a change agent. And so after having an academic career for a few years, I decided to run for office. Uh, I lost the first time. Uh, I won the second time and I became chairwoman of the education committee. So I was a part of the legislative body of the city council, which is by the way, the second largest legislative body in the country, slightly smaller than Chicago. And I was chairwoman of the education committee. And I studied every aspect of schooling. I held 125 hearings on every topic under the sun. How do we do arts education, sports, science, math? How does the budgeting work? How do we do procurement? And I came to the conclusion that it was gonna be very hard to fix this highly, highly dysfunctional system. Uh, The most famous hearings that I held that kind of garnered international attention was I held hearings on what is considered the third rail of democratic politics, and I'm a Democrat. Uh, I call myself a Democrat who's read Adam Smith, but I am a Democrat. I held hearings on the teachers union contract, the custodians union contract, and the principals union contract. And it was the first time in my life that I ever felt 
that I was living a Godfather movie because uh, there were threats and uh, people, you know, canceled because they were threatened in terms of testifying. But I really came to appreciate the stranglehold that the unions had on the governing of the school system and how that governance structure was really oriented towards adult interests and not the interests of children. And so how did this idea of Success Academy come to be? When did you have this aha moment that now was the right time to start this network of schools in New York City? You know, we saw the inception of charter schools in the 1990s today. I think there's nearly 7,000 charter schools across the country. Um, just can you explain a little bit about um, what inspired you to, to launch Success Academy? Well, truth be told, when I decided to hold those hearings, um, the teachers union in particular said they would take me out of office. And they they did. Uh, and I was okay with that because I thought, you know, you don't always want to postpone being a profile encouraged until you get your next office. I felt that these contracts were um, public documents, uh, publicly funded, publicly signed, and that it was appropriate to do oversight and investigation into them. But I also knew the political consequences of doing that. Um, so when that happened, I really thought about what could I do that would most materially impact children? Uh, and, you know, I got offers from foundations and I really, I didn't think while those are very worthwhile activities, I concluded that it, it was really hard to fix the broken urban school district. And that rather than trying to fix what was broken, it might make sense to start anew and see what you could do for children if you had the freedom to get it right. Charters don't mean you will get it right, but they give you quite a bit of freedom to get it right. And could you design a school system that was non-selective because we accept our kids by random lottery? Could you- Every April, right? Uh, every April, that's correct. Uh, and our demand far outpaces our supply, no matter how many schools I open. And one year I did a crazy thing and I opened 10 schools at once. I'm not sure I'll ever do that again, but I kept trying to open as fast as I could. And the more schools I open, the more demand there is, um, which is really quite tragic because it means that there isn't apathy. There's actually a supply problem, but in any case, I, I was really intrigued by the challenge of, could you get it right? Could you, and to me, getting it right is something very particular. It is, um, you know, uh, giving parents and families a choice. It is educating the whole child. Uh, I'm the mother of three and while academics is incredibly important to me, so is art and music and chess and dance. And so is my kids' emotional health 
and social capacity. That's also part of schooling. Could you do everything? Could you educate the whole child in a way that was rigorous um, and joyful uh, for kids and families? So that was the challenge that I set for myself. And could you do it 40 times over? So take us back to those early conversations with Joel Greenblatt, with John Petrie, you know, the three of you talking about uh, this freedom that you uh, had mentioned that you uh, that you see with uh, the launch of a new charter school network. Yeah, well, it was really exciting. I first met Joel and John uh, when they were uh, supporting uh, a district school, uh, and I went to that district school, and I saw the work that they had done with that district school, uh, and I, you know, they asked me for some advice. Uh, they were hedge fund guys, not necessarily schooling folks, and I was just really taken with you know, Joel's vision. He wanted a replicable model that was going to be done for the same or less money than the district. And he wanted to get profoundly better results. And I thought that is a vision that should be. And so um, I was really interested in that. Uh, Now, there were a whole bunch of things that I wanted that, you know, weren't, I think, initially on his agenda. So I, when I uh, negotiated the job, I said, I wouldn't take it unless I could offer every child chess. And I wouldn't take it if we didn't have science five days a week. And it had to be discovery oriented science, because I really believe in experiments and kids learning by doing. And Joel and John said, sure, you know, their requirements were really replicable model, something that's sustainable on public dollars, and that could do significantly better uh, for the same or less money. And we have delivered on that promise. So when you look at charter school funding, you know, it's a public-private relationship uh, charter schools are funded by local, state, and tax and federal tax dollars. Similar to district schools, you know the funding is really based on student enrollment. But uh, charter schools receive about seventy percent less funding than district schools. Yeah, when it started, it was seventy-five cents on the dollar, and now it's actually sixty-three cents on the dollar. We get somewhere between four and five thousand dollars less per child. And you have to understand, Haley, that's in the context of a longer school day and a longer school year. So those that absence of that lack of funding parity uh, makes it particularly challenging. We are uh, largely doing this on the public dollar, but we raise about $40 million a year in innovation funding. They believe in the American dream. They believe that public education is a right and they uh, give us money in order to innovate. So for example, I have now digitized all of K-12 education. It's hard to do a project like that just on your operating dollars. Um, I have uh, rewritten Uh, five to 12 uh, mathematics that requires 
capital outside of your operating to create that intellectual property that, uh, which by the way, we share with the country. So we don't treat it as proprietary, but I do raise money in order to um, create the content and design. Uh, for the facilities of the 47, uh, all but uh, four are in uh, public facilities uh, and we get uh, rental assistance from the government to lease building space for the others. What do you make of claims that charter schools are sort of like a backdoor uh, privatization, this idea that they're diverting money away from school districts? Well, it's, it's, I'm really glad you asked that question because I think uh, it's a really important one. I, I would say a few things. Um, first, I think people are a little confused about privatization, meaning um, charter schools are publicly created, publicly regulated, and publicly funded. It's not so much privatization as independent of the big bureaucracy and management on the one hand and the labor contracts on the other. District schools are not all public. They have vendors for almost everything under the sun. Um, that's not us. We're a 501c3. Uh, we've been given authorization by the state to set up a school with a charter with the state in terms of what we're accountable for. And we get less money than the district. So far from taking money, every time a student comes to us, the system has more money. I don't think it should. I think the money should follow the child, but that's not actually how it works. How do you ensure accountability at your individual schools, you know, bringing this management style to ensure accountability? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Sure. Well, we have a charter with the state where we, uh, it's sort of a compact, if you will where we say, if you let us open a school, we will get minimally these results. And we have over-promised and over-delivered every single year we've been in existence. Um, so there is a high level of accountability through the charter, but one of the things that is different about success than other schools is that we believe in close management. Um, management is a little bit, managing anything is a little bit of a dirty word in education circles. We believe that just letting a thousand flowers bloom doesn't work as well and that you need to have KPIs and people need to know what they're shooting for both quantitatively and qualitatively. And then people need to be held accountable for those results. So, of course, our principals are accountable for results. 
we also have school managers who are sort of like mini superintendents and they are accountable for results. Of course, I am accountable for results uh, as the CEO, uh, the board, I have bosses, uh, the board of trustees, and you know, uh, I must deliver on the results enterprise-wide. Those are results are academic, they're financial, uh, they're sometimes uh, uh, social and cultural. Uh, we have a DEI agenda that I need to deliver on. Uh, it's a highly accountable, far more so than the district where the, you know, there's a lot of blame going on. The principal's union blames the chancellor and the chancellor uh, sometimes blames the parents. Uh, we don't have that pointing of fingers. It's a highly accountable system. What role do the charter boards play in, in this? Um, in well, it's, this? A, it's a governance. You know, they have governance. Uh, there are bylaws. Uh, there's a finance committee that has to uh, oversee the finances. There's a curriculum and talent committee and they have to make sure that uh you know we have a principal for every school you know the governance structure there's the board of trustees we actually have two boards there's a governing board that focuses more on the schools and there's a network board that focuses more on this overall enterprise strategy and i i have to say haley i am very blessed with uh, a very smart, dedicated, um, courageous board, because as you know, the charters can be controversial when you join a charter board. Not everybody likes charters. Uh, and so, you know, you have to be courageous that this is the right thing for the kids. Uh, I have wonderful board chairs, wonderful board members, uh, I feel very, very fortunate. And they're thought partners. Obviously, I'm management and they uh, oversee, but they're really uh, in it with me to guide and steward the organization for the highest possible performance. Are a number of your of donors to Success Academy sitting on boards or it, it's a wide variety of different folks? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would say the vast majority are are donors. Uh, we do have parents on the board as well on the governing board, um, but it's it's diverse. Uh, we do have a lot of hedge fund uh, finance people uh, yeah. on the board, but we, we look for operational experience in real estate and human capital um, and education, you know, so that we can, um, management can get the most wise counsel possible. There are opportunity zones and new market tax credits that um, these programs are incentives, you know, for um, people to donate. And I, you know, I would say invest as well in charter schools. You know, have you seen that um, these U.S. tax credits um, in some way help you find appropriate funding for charter schools? Well, you are right that there are some mechanisms uh, that are specific to facilities. Um, we haven't taken advantage of those. The opportunity has not uh, sort of presented itself. Um, 
you know, most of our donors are really doing charitable work. There's no, there's no gain uh, at all. It's just they really believe that it's a moral imperative that uh, we have opportunity for our poorest, youngest children. Uh, I'm sure you know this, but, you know, if you have the haves and the have-nots, and that gulf gets wider and wider, um, that puts a tremendous cap on opportunity. It will stretch the civic fabric uh, of our country. Um, so the educational crisis that we are facing in this country has to be solved and taken seriously. Uh, and our board members deeply believe that um, this is about doing right uh, by our most disadvantaged citizens. It is about the global competitiveness of our country. Uh, it is about uh, the civic fabric of our country. And so um, they're really in it to win it for those reasons. I guess I just am looking to see if you think there is a case for some of our subscribers who are, you know, hedge fund managers, who um, are institutional investors, to include, you know, uh, donating and investing in charter schools in their portfolios. Sure, there are a ton of opportunities. Absolutely. I'm sorry, I didn't totally understand the question. Yeah, there are total, a ton of opportunities, both um, there are a number of mechanisms and vehicles um, that help uh, in certain uh, geographic zones that are designated as opportunity zones. There are mechanisms for facilities um, and there's sort of pure charity. All of those are available. And I think, you know, it's an incredibly worthy cause uh, to give a child and a family a choice uh, and a shot at a better life. And you also have the EB-5 program as well for foreign investors to, um, do you have foreign investors in Success Academy? No, and there are some particular rules that are a little complicated uh, in terms of the state of New York. Not every state is the same in terms of what's allowed and not allowed. Okay, understood. So, um, you know, I would like to talk now about uh, how Success Academy has operated, you know, amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you know, you're currently in remote 2.0. Uh, you're doing remote learning through the end of the year, through December right now. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what it has been like for you since March and how your students um, have transitioned? Sure. Well, first of all, um, we made the decision, I made the decision to close um, when the city and state of New York were saying, we're not going to close, childcare is too important, this is not uh, such a big deal, the pandemic. I had been through swine and Ebola, and I had been watching what was going on in Wuhan. And it just didn't make sense to me that this thing wasn't coming, given the amount of air travel, etc. And what I started to read in terms of uh, epidemiology, every smart person I could find was saying, this is going to be a pandemic. And why? 
uh, it had this COVID had a particularly vicious transmission rate. So to me, it was a question of not when, but if. And I decided to close because I was really worried about flattening the curve. It seemed that our hospitals were going to be overwhelmed, et cetera. So that, unfortunately, you know, uh, I'd been thinking about it, but I, you know, I didn't have too much preparation for remote 1.0. Fortunately, we were very digitized. We were digitized fourth through 12th grade already before the pandemic. Uh, the first thing I did before I decided to close the schools was put in an order for Chrome tablets so that my K-3 kids uh, could, in short order, be remote. Um, 1.0 was as good as we could make it with very short notice. While I stood up remote 1.0, I was planning remote 2.0. And remote 1.0 was the best we could do with very little planning time and it didn't contain or include certain critical elements of our on-campus school design. So there was pretty minimal scholar talent. I didn't know how to do soccer remotely. I tried a little bit to do art, but we didn't have supplies and there's only so many spice paintings one can do with kids. Um, you know, I also hadn't um, not changed my curriculum, but given teachers real guidance on how to take the curriculum units and transfer them to remote. So it was, much better than the district, but I would say it was not stellar. Nonetheless, 65% uh, of our kids grew and we got real academic results. And we know because the one thing we didn't change in 1.0 was we didn't cancel assessments. Canceling assessments only harms the children. It means that the adults don't know whether their methods are effective. So we had real data. But when I made that decision, I started planning for 2.0 and used really the period March to June to plan for 2.0. And 2.0 was different in a number of ways. First, it was real school, our whole school design, including science five days a week, including soccer, including art, including music. We researched how do you do choir? How do you do that remotely? Uh, we had to find different applications. We had to get everyone monitors, bigger monitors, so a soccer coach could see the 30 kids working on the drill. We had to get all the kids' soccer balls at home. So uh, Remote 2.0 was real school, including science five days a week, and included scholar talent. It also included a plan for struggling students. The kids that we uh, found March to June that did the worst um, needed that extra small group instruction. Not the general small group instruction, but we did we do normally, but extra help. So in 2.0, we built that into the schedule. We knew who those kids were, and we did much more one-on-one -on -one small group instruction for those kids. We also did a lot more social and emotional health. You have to understand, Haley, that the kids and families that I serve were the worst hit 
by COVID. And so there were tremendous number of deaths in the families, in the community. And that was also uh, just a very trying time. And you couldn't even hold a funeral the way you normally do. Right. If you look at the socioeconomics of your students, you know, 97% are students of color, 16% have disabilities, and 8% are English language learners. As you said, the families of these students are the ones that were really hit the hardest by the coronavirus pandemic as it relates to health risks and economic risks, job losses. You know, how have they been able to sustain this? Well, we have, first of all, a very close relationship with our family, and it's a little bit counterintuitive because we have a standard model, but the standard model is not meant to feel standard to the child and the family. So, you know, if our schools were on campus now and you went into one of our schools, every parent knows the principal. The principal knows every child's name. Um, every parent has the cell phone number of every teacher. We're really uh, a little village and it's much tighter knit than even your typical suburban school. Uh, very high degrees of communication. Uh, and, you know, while we couldn't, we're not medical doctors, we, we're not economists, we don't know how to fix the economy. What we know how to do is love children and provide for children educationally and to provide predictability. I mean, one of the things you see with the chaos in the districts, they're open, then they're not open, then they postpone, then they're gonna do remote, but then the teachers aren't gonna be online. It is incredibly confusing and unsettling when there are lots of other unsettling things in everybody's life. So we try to call it early, and decisively and have tremendous transparency. Here's why we're opening remotely. You notice that I called it through December. And you know, that was a hard call because I desperately wanna be back on campus. Our parents wanna be back, our kids miss each other. But given the choices of safety, government, bureaucracy, regulations, and doing teaching and learning remotely well, I thought certainty was better than zigzagging. You know, teachers have to know, parents have to plan childcare. Uh, and the on Monday we're announcing we're doing X and on Tuesday we're reversing ourselves. That is very difficult for parents, particularly working parents. So we said, we're gonna call it for some length of time. And by the way, we are not asking our parents to educate kids. We are on the Zoom. It's like real school. You have a morning meeting. Uh, you have, if you're in kindergarten, you have game time and wiggle time. And uh, you have all the components of literacy and you have science. Uh, our kids are busy. They're not, um, their parents are not teaching them phonics. Parents are not teaching their kids algebra in eighth grade. We are doing that. Now, of course, if they're five, what we're not doing is the childcare, and that makes it hard for working parents. 
Um, two questions out of what you just said. One, um, have you had to modify your facilities at all so that when you do return, um, you know, the environment will be um, safe, but, but different than it was prior? And two, what happens with, um, you know, 74% of your students rely on uh, school lunch, right? How did you handle that? Yeah, I mean, um, we are very fortunate in this country that we have a very robust food stamp program. And so our parents often who are needy rely on that, you know, on the weekends, over Christmas vacation. So there are supports, but of course, whenever we find a family in need and we did have uh, a number that for whatever reason, that was not sufficient or didn't work, we have a crisis support team that uh, kind of fills the gaps. And that could be um, food, it could be buying a pair of glasses for a kid whose glasses are broken, who needs it to read. Um, that could be when a family has a fire in their home uh, and they need clothes. Um, you know, there's, there's a way to provide for that. Um, but I wouldn't underestimate how devastating uh, the pandemic was. Um, we just, we had a lot of deaths and, um, you know, government was sort of shut down. So getting the foster care system to work in the midst of a pandemic is not so easy to do. And I think it was really hard on our families. And I'm so I'm so grateful for the love of our teachers. And we have the most amazing young people who give it their all and are so loving and are willing to step in and um, help buoy the mood of a kid who's um, in a challenging circumstance. Uh, our educational leaders went above and beyond. And I have to say, our parents, um, you know, despite all the challenges, it really is inspiring to see, um, you know, the willingness to sacrifice for their children. You know, even if the parents are having a tough time, they kept their eyes on the prize, no matter how difficult it was that, you know, their child learning to be a great reader or a great mathematician uh, is going to ensure that the next generation has it better. As a, as a mom, you know, I want my kids to have it better than I do. And so you're always thinking about what do you do to make that a reality? And our parents really, you know, they were in it to, to win it and were extraordinarily dedicated. We tried to do a certain number of things to make it easier. So I launched a virtual after school program. Uh, so we just, uh, uh, you know, we brought the circus to our kids digitally. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the paper bag players, but it's a uh, early childhood magical theater program. We just brought that to all of our K to two kids. So we've tried to provide extra programming, all for free, by the way, um, so that you know, we can at least give our working parents and um, families who have to take care of elderly sick relatives a little more support. We also this year uh, waived uh, all of the technology fees and the uniform fees. So at least our families uh, didn't have to worry about 
about those two financial obligations. And what about uh, modifying your facilities when returning? Is that something that you're thinking of now? Well, the DOE does that. We actually offered up our facilities to the district. Once I made the call that I was going to be shut through December, I, um, I went to the district and I said, if you need these facilities, um, you know, given the social distancing and given that I wasn't going to be using them through December. Um, and so, you know, the facilities that they're using, they've made some modifications. And, you know, you had mentioned and, you know, we've all seen the headlines and the reports that the New York City Public School District, um, their reopening plan, you know, has been a bit chaotic. You know, what do you think is the biggest takeaway they can gain from uh, from your plan and model um, in the last few months? I would say that education is 90 percent execution and they are terrible at it. And they didn't really devote the time and energy to executing. Like you've got to think through all the operational details. And if you can imagine when you have to make sure that 32 kindergartners uh, get to go to the bathroom and are fed and get water, uh, you know, it's complicated. Schooling is an intricate operational um, matter. It, it, you can't just say go and have it all work out. It, it's, it's planning with a level of precision that they were totally ill-prepared for. I mean, I find it you know, heartbreaking that they said, okay, you have to social distance. You can only have so many kids in a class. How did they not calculate how many additional teachers they would need? That's like basic. That's so basic. You, you have to know how many teachers. So you may have read in New York, they were scrambling because they were 9,000 teachers short the night before school opens. I just, I don't get that. I mean, we had super detailed plans. But one of our, my guiding principles is simplicity. You, you have to, you, your, your design cannot outpace your executional capacity. And so when I looked at what we were trying to do, I concluded that um, really caring about teaching and learning, we were better off not flip-flopping, not spending all of our time on toileting and keeping the kids safe and navigating a very complex regulatory framework. As much as I wanted to be on campus, we were better off doing remote learning exceptionally well and making it as joyful as humanly possible. And that was a simplicity guiding principle. Rather than trying to do many, many things poorly, how about we do fewer things exceptionally well? And you've stressed the importance of building a strong culture of learning um, uh, as, uh, as it relates to the success of how your charter school networks have been able to get through, you know, this radical and tough time right now. You know, there were some resign, you know, resignation letters of uh, school officials um, who worked at Success Academy who criticized uh, the school's culture as it relates to race and inclusion. What was your response to that? 
well, we're a big organization. And so, you know, uh, a handful of people resigning, uh, you know, since we, the day we've opened 15 years ago, that has happened. Um, but um, I feel very strongly about diversity and inclusion. We have a very particular anti-racist agenda. Our agenda is to uh, educate uh, young people exceptionally well so that they are empowered to enter uh, selective and elite institutions of higher education uh, so that they can, uh, to be blunt, rule the world one day. And so um, that is uh, baked in to our mission. So we do that with a very diverse and inclusive workforce. And just to give you a few examples of this, 56% of our new teachers are people of color. The national comparison is 18%, and the New York City figure is 40%. So we are quite diverse. That doesn't mean we can't do better. Our curriculum, uh, reflects a multicultural perspective as well as canonical texts. Um, we are aiming to empower young people with a rigorous, joyful education. And not everybody likes the disruptive aspect of our work. And so we get pushback from the unions from elected officials who like the monopoly of public education. We prefer competition. We prefer parents being able to choose. If the parent wants to go to the district school, God bless. If they wanna to go to a private school, God bless. If they wanna to go to a public charter school, God bless. But that is the parent's choice. And as a parent, my husband and I decide where we're gonna send our three kids. And by the way, my three kids are not the same. One school wouldn't work for all three kids. And so that I'm very protective of a parent's right to choose. We're not running schools for the special interests. We're running schools for the kids and the families. And so they should get the opportunity to choose what is gonna work best for them. Now, looking ahead, you know, will COVID-19 forever change how Success Academy operates? I think it will uh, in some regards. Um, you know, like everybody else, there's a lot of stuff that we were doing in person that can be done on Zoom, and it's much more convenient. So uh, certainly with parents, we don't need to have a non-Zoom parent meeting unless the parent wants to come in in person. But we've been able to do so much more in a way more convenient way over Zoom. So uh, at our high school, for example, um, you know, all of the college admissions, uh, helping parents with the FAFSA form, you know, parents used to have to come into the school. Well, if you've got younger children or you're caring for an elderly parent, um, why make anyone do that? Uh, they can just get on the Zoom. Uh, if you look at all the things happening with the special ed bureaucracy, it's a very antiquated system that was making parents 
uh, show up to meetings in very particular hours. Now everything is done on Zoom. That's a way more effective way to do things. I don't think that on-campus learning is no longer valuable. I'm a big believer in schooling being partly about relationship building. You have to, as a teacher, you have to have relationship with the kids. Part of the fun of school is the social intellectual community that you're building. So I wouldn't want a world in which we only had remote learning. But uh, we have proven that digitization K-12 can happen. Uh, my educators were very scared of kindergartners having an email address. We've proven that kindergartners can have an email address and the world doesn't come to an end. Sure, and to, to just piggyback on that, you know, I would love to get your take on what you think this means for higher education, you know, as it relates to the student debt crisis and the shift in virtual learning on campuses uh, for, you know, colleges and universities. Well, the older the kids are, um, the more it is highly practical to um, do Zoom, you know, at kindergarten, we're doing it, but it's a little hard. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, college being at the other end of this, I think there are way more efficient ways that higher education can be delivering it while having an in on person experience. I think we've got to get more efficient at delivering it. And we certainly plan to uh, five through 12. Uh, what is synchronous? What is asynchronous? What do you absolutely need to do? How do you use your time more efficiently so you can have more recitation uh, and yet have recorded lectures and so forth? I think it's going to provoke a sea change. Uh, and partly that is from what we've discovered uh, in this time of remote learning. I think also the brutal economic facts are gonna affect things. I mean, elite colleges are $60,000 per kid a year. Uh, how does that get sustained? It strikes me as um, things are gonna have to shift. And just a few more questions. You had uh, mentioned that you would like to get to operate 100 schools within, you know, the, the, within the decade. Um, is that still tangible um, given the coronavirus pandemic and, and this sort of setback? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, God willing, the pandemic is uh, long but temporary, right? We're, we do expect a vaccine. Uh, so uh, if it were not temporary, that would be a different matter. But I, everything I've read indicates that we will have a vaccine uh, you know, what the order of distribution is, et cetera, all that needs to be worked out. So I don't think that is the limiting factor. I do think politics is a limiting factor. In New York State, we have some very anti-charter forces. Currently, the mayor of the city of New York, Mayor de Blasio, has been uh, radically anti-charter from the day he took office. Um, we have members of the assembly that are anti-charter, um, which is really a 
sad because uh, they're claiming to represent the interests of the poorest, most vulnerable children while being anti-charter, but that's a limiting factor. And can we get over that politics? Can we, you know, have common sense prevail? Uh, you know, I hope so. And I certainly as an advocate, I'm going to do everything in my power, but we actually do need the business community to weigh in on school choice. It's a really important public policy matter and means the difference between poor kids getting a shot at life and not. And so I'm hoping that um, parents are voting with their feet. They have said uh, they want charters as an option. They want success as an option but the politicians haven't caught up to that dynamic and they've got the unions not whispering in their ear, but shouting in their ear. And without a powerful counterbalance, the unions could, the teachers union could win the day. Uh, there's currently a cap lift in the state of New York. So unless you have a few charters, we happen to have some, but unless you if, if you don't, if there are no more charters in the state of New York, so you couldn't open up another charter. And that would be so tragic, so, so tragic for our poorest children. It's literally, they're trapped in a failing school. And Haley, it's hard to imagine how bad that is if you haven't seen it. But I've gone, I'm co-located with district schools and I walk through district schools where kids are in the auditorium with the Lion King on loop. That's what they're watching all day long. There's no reading, writing, mathematics, science. The, the education that is being provided is sometimes so poor. Um, kids are being yelled at by adults. It's, it's not a good learning environment. It's a very poor learning environment. And if a kid develops a negative relationship with school, that is hard to overcome. If you've had that from kindergarten to third grade and you haven't learned to read, that's permanent. That's hard to get out from under. And so we're doing that to not thousands of kids, but hundreds of thousands of kids uh, and we really need a wake-up call in this country. Are we going to sit by and let a generation of kids, uh, or are we going to, you know, be the ingenious Americans that we are with our can-do attitude and say enough is enough? We can send a man to the moon, but we can't have better schools? And on that note, do you think you can do more as a private citizen on that front? Or, you know, for example, there were reports that you uh, were thinking about running for mayor, you know, four plus years ago. Is that something that's on the table in 2021 in New York? You know, you had also met with President Trump uh, regarding the, um, uh, the Secretary of Education position. Um, is that something you would be interested in if there is a new administration or, um, you know, what that would look like on your end? Where do you think you could have the most influence? Well, uh, out of out of respect, I met with the president-elect uh, uh, Trump, but I rejected that. Uh, uh, I I am a Democrat. I am very troubled uh, 
um, by the political leadership that we have at the national level right now. Uh, and so I support Biden. Uh, but, you know, I am focused right now on um, changing our uh, changing the educational landscape and really changing uh, influencers relationship to this very important social problem. Whether you come at public education from a social justice perspective, which I do, or as a patriot, which I do, we have to solve this problem. Uh, and it is eminently solvable. It's only a question of political will. Uh, doing it at the level that Success Academy does it uh, is hard, I'll admit. Um, but not being terrible is not that hard. And many, many schools are so fundamentally broken, and yet we're pouring money into them. And year after year, decade after decade, um, those schools are failing. So right now, I am very, very focused on running great schools and improving the quality of success academies, even in this remote environment. And I'm very, very focused on reimagining public education. Uh, and I believe that our schools really can give the country hope. It's possible to reverse the achievement gap. It's possible with less money and more dedication to high performance to uh, bring back opportunity for our poorest children and citizens uh, if we have the will to do it. Thank you, Eva, for joining us today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good day. Welcome to the end of the video. We know that on average, 85% of you who start a video on Real Vision finish it. That's extraordinary. On Facebook, it would just be 4%. And that's because Real Vision creates the most engaging content in the entire media world. Let us help you grow your business by making video content that really engages your customers. Email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.